very happy to have this opportunity and privilege to worship God together today to commune with Christ our Savior and now to study God's Word together for a little while. I've been doing a series in Amarillo on the book of Philippians, specifically on the subject of joy because it's known as the letter or the epistle of joy, and I want to share a part of that series. you this morning find joy in Philippians 4 verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice twice within one verse we're given the same command for emphasis because it's that important and note that it's a commandment not a suggestion therefore not only is it possible but it's not optional now it's optional in the sense that we can choose joy we can choose where and how we find joy but if we're going to be identified as a christian as belonging to christ the fruit of the spirit is love the proof that we have to belong to jesus is joy and joyless christianity has done a great disservice to the cause of christ this concept especially maybe in previous generations that smiling or laughing or any form of pleasure or happiness was sinful and carnal joyless christianity is the billboard of satan and when we walk around with this attitude and the tone of eeyore the joy of the lord is my that's not convincing that's not compelling that's not attractive and so as c.s lewis wrote Joy is the serious business of heaven. And that's why we have a multitude of verses throughout the Bible commanding, demanding that we rejoice. Some would argue that the command to rejoice joy the Lord is prevalent as 19 times in the book of Philippians alone. And so if you want real joy, if you want lasting joy, if you want richer, fuller joy if you want joy that lasts if you want more joy i would encourage you to study and apply the book of philippians into your life sadly most don't find it two-thirds of americans admit they are unhappy and we want to distinguish between worldly concepts of happiness versus joy think about the word happiness hap means chance luck it's a happiness that's like a roller coaster. It's up and down, dependent upon, tied to the circumstances in our life. We want to think about joy as the Bible presents it as something more real, richer, fuller, more lasting, something that's independent, that roots us and grounds us no matter what the happenstance or circumstance is at the surface of our life. And that kind of joy is not selfish pursuit of pleasure. That's the secret. It is a byproduct. It is found indirectly by directly pursuing God and others in our life. And so if you want a thesis statement to remember the concept of our study this morning, joy comes when you put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And perhaps the thematic statement of the book of Philippians is found in the first chapter Verse 27, when Paul writes, only let your 
Live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And he goes on to explain what that life is, what that looks like. Selflessly united based on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Striving together, not against, side to side, not face to face for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he continues in the next chapter that we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this morning. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. In other words, you sense... Because, because you belong to Jesus, because you belong to each other, because agape love is the catalyst, the motive, the motivation, fulfill my joy and be selflessly united in Christ. And he goes on to tell us how we can have peace and fellowship and unity with God and each other and therefore rejoice in the Lord together. Through faction, through there is a very comprehensive, all-encompassing word. Do nothing through selfishness, through faction, or through vainglory. There's a good rule of thumb. Don't assume your time, your life, your money, your family, your health, your soul is more important and valuable than your neighbors. You think about what robs us of joy and disturbs our peace in life. The ultimate cause of that is sin. And what's the ultimate cause of sin? When I do the root cause analysis in my life, I find the chief cause of misery in every family and nation since the world began, essentially echoing what James wrote in James chapter 3. Think about you and me, mono e mono, just our relate. Not how our decisions and selfishness affects our community, our congregation, our world at large. Just you and me, one on one. If we are both esteeming self, and they were fighting over who was going to get the first pancake. And the mom tried to teach them a lesson. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Jesus would let the other boy. Eat the pancake. Jesus would let others go first. And these boys are the same age as my boys currently are, five and three. And the five-year-old told the three-year-old. You bear the cross. You do what's hard and inconvenient. You be Jesus. And so Philippians 2 gives us, I believe, the keys to having great relationships that will bring great joy in our life. You know what Paul essentially says in our modern vernacular? You know what he's saying here? Get over yourself. Don't be a conceited, selfish person. Be humble. Count others more significant than yourself. Somebody says, how is that possible? Somebody isn't more significant, better than me at, at everything. Think about who wrote this. Paul was an apostle of Jesus, and that's what he did. Jesus did this. He counted and esteemed us more significant than himself when we, in fact, know that we are not more significant than 
significant than Jesus. So the emphasis, the emphasis you choose to seem them to be. And the question becomes, will we count others significant, worthy of our concern, our time, our money, etc.? Similar concept, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be empathetic. Condescend. Don't be condescending. Condescend. Lower yourself. Be not wise in your own conceit. Overcome evil with good. And again, we see this connection. Love, joy, peace. Joy and peace. Philippians 4, the peace of God. Joy and peace. Study after study consistently ranks peace, good relationships as a top priority to having happiness in life. And I believe that starts in the home. I would contend that you will not find joy outside of your home if you have If there's not joy and pleasure in that relationship, it creates a vacuum, a thirst to find that joy somewhere else. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, speaking of children. A wise child causes their parents to rejoice. Each member of the family needs to consider and concentrate on how I can bring joy into my home, how I can cause rejoicing in my home. And so a key to having great relationships is guarding attitudes that prevent us from esteeming others and counting others more significant than ourselves. And I will confess this morning, I really have to work on that. Because when you look at somebody and all you can see and think is ignorant, arrogant, And again, the emphasis is not on what they are. They might be all of those things. They may be acting in all those ways. The emphasis is on what you choose to esteem and count them to be. And so the heart of this, the link, the transition between don't be selfish and esteem others is lowliness of mind. Be willing to take a lower place. And the cross, he goes on to say, is the motivation for that. The that humbles and enable yourself your God, you will be humbled and that transforms and affects the way we view and treat other people lowliness is the opposite of entitlement entitlement says you owe me humility says i owe god and others and why do we live with this sense of debt to god and others because god indebted himself to me counted me worthy and significant when he owed me That's why we do it. Think about this. You are the most like Satan and the most unlike Jesus when you are proud and selfish. Pride is the quickest way to get God and others against you. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. Be humble. And think about the context of this entire book, First Peter. Think about it's about suffering, right? Opposition to our faith, challenges to our faith. 
It's about sanctification. Be ye holy as I am holy. How to live in the world, not of the world. But what's the solution to the adversity we face because of our faith and our striving to be holy in an unholy world? What's the solution? It's this paradox, the exact opposite response we would think to give, submit. <laughs> That's how you win. Submit to your boss. Submit to your church, to your leaders. Submit to your spouse. Submit to each other. <laughs> submit this nobody's going to tell me what to do do you know who i am that's not going to make your life better happier easier in fact i would argue it typically invites more tyranny in our lives and more opportunities to submit right was greater than rights what would that look that in the church, the world, our life. Think about many examples of people who made sacrifices for others, including the very life. Think about a recent example of a six-year-old boy who saved his four-year-old sister from a German shepherd attack. And I thought about putting a picture up to show you what this looks like before and after. And I I thought it should be me. That's what we're talking about. And the ultimate, infinitely graphic picture of that is Son of God on a cross. Bernard Rimland did a study where he asked people to list the 10 people they knew best in their life and then label them as happy or unhappy and then go back through that list and label them as selfish or unselfish. Every person that was labeled happy was also labeled unselfish. The conclusion of that study, people whose efforts are devoted to making self happy are far less likely to be happy than those devoted to making others happy. And that's exactly what we're talking about this morning. Think about the Beatitudes. Jesus said, Here, here's the kind of person, here's the kind of life. It's a, it's a characteristic, it's a character that results in blessedness and happiness. And again, it's this paradox. You're not going to find it the way the world seeks it, where the world seeks it, the way that makes sense. It's the The spiritual poverty before God that invites the grace of God instead of the resistance of God in your life. That's how you find joy. Blessed are the meek. You want to be happy? Be meek. Someone says it seems like meekness is weakness. That those who are inheriting the earth are doing so on the backs of others. You will not truly enjoy this earth and the new earth without being kind, benevolent, merciful, loving. That's the truth. Blessed are the merciful. The joy of letting go of bitterness and ulcers. Being forgiving for others, inviting God and others to give merciful success will bring great, great joy into your life. Blessed are the peacemakers. We talk about the connection with joy and peace. Being the type of person that's not trying to cause division and stir things up. Being the kind of person that unites people. That'll bring joy in your life. And so in Romans 13, as we think about the greatest commands, a similar context to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 about submission, pay your taxes. It's summarized and fulfilled in that. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He goes on to say, do not destroy the one for whom God died. 
the work of God, the one for whom Christ died through your selfishness. Don't do it. Philippians, we find the word harmless. Be harmless. It reminds us of what Jesus said. Be harmless as doves and wise as serpents. We get that backwards a whole lot. <laughs> We're about as wise as a dove. And a... First Corinthians 10 Paul here talking about matters of liberty and judgment. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Might be lawful, but is it expedient? Does it edify? Philippians 1, he talks, but I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in insight, because love without knowledge and insight is a parody, and knowledge and insight without love is a bloodbath. And so I would love to grow in excellent things. That's a challenge for Christians. Not just right and wrong, but what's the best decision I can make? And Paul says, the best decision I can make is to not seek my own good, but the good of my neighbor. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. One of the most beautiful, powerful, compelling things Christians have done for 2,000 years is being willing to lay aside our rights, our privilege, our life for the interest of others. Isn't that what agape love is? Isn't that what agape love does? 1 Corinthians 13, you could tie every characteristic back to Philippians 2. Love is patient and kind. It's not rude. It's not puffed up. It's not arrogant. a follow-up question. Who's my neighbor? And what was Jesus' response to the story of the Good Samaritan? And if you know what a Samaritan was, you can understand how much that would have stung that audience. Essentially, how convicting it is when the heathen show more concern and compassion for others than us religious folk do. And it begs the question, am I the one asking what will happen to me if I stop? Or what will happen to him if I don't stop? God has been generous and gracious towards you. You be generous and gracious toward other people. Somebody says, what? Why didn't he say treat others the way they want to be treated? That seems like a better rule. Well, perhaps they're not operating under a biblical, godly worldview. Maybe they don't define love correctly. So you treat them the way you want to be treated as a Christian. Whatever. Comprehensive word. Not limited. Wish. Don't just return what's been done to you. Think. Dream bigger than that. Others includes not just your inner circle, not just your clique, not just your family and friends. It includes friend and foe alike. And I submit to you that this, the violation of this rule, this principle, the greatest. And would cure so many diseases. Not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also on the things of others. And so Paul goes on to give examples, illustrations of verse 4 people. Theory and practice. And the first and ultimate example of that is Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend a lot of time in these verses here in a moment. But I just want to say for now, if Jesus, if God was not exempted from putting the interest of others above his own interest, we're not exempted from doing that either. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. The example of Timothy, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. How sad. 
for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Why did he say Jesus Christ? When you seek the welfare of others, you are secret of Jesus, because that's what Jesus is interested in. I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. When you did it under the least of these, you did it unto me, Matthew chapter 25. The example of Epaphroditus, who for the work of Christ, he was nigh to death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Risking his life to take this gift to Paul, nine to death. And what's he concerned about? He's worried sick, not about his own health, about them. They've heard that he was sick, and they're worried about him. And he's worried sick, not about his own health, about them being worried about him. And what a contrast. When we're sick, we want the whole world to know about it, (laughs) especially us men. We'll take a bullet for you, just don't give us the cold or the stomach bug. I felt nine to death one time in India. Andrew can tell you about that. He was my roommate. And I'll confess, I wasn't very concerned about people being worried about me back home. I was concerned, is there enough air conditioning, Gatorade, and crackers? (laughs) And notice that ministry is not 50-50. That's the nature of ministry. He traveled 700 miles. He risked his life. Nearly died. He said, he's he's brought me so much joy and he's been such a help to me. But I'm sending him back because you're worried about him and he's worried about you. I'm doing this for your... Find joy in making others joyful. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Philippians 1, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you. It's all about the proclamation of the gospel. All these things that have happened to me, and you can read other places what had happened to him. He said, it's it's all for good. My adversity has given the gospel an audience that it wouldn't have had otherwise. It's emboldened Christians to speak up, and I will rejoice in that. Even those who are preaching in opposition to Paul, competing with hearing and responding to the gospel i will rejoice because it's not about me it's bigger than me i don't even know what to wish for to die to depart and be with christ to have more jesus which is far better for me or to stay a little longer with you i may be incarcerated will rejoice You are my joy and my crown. You are the wreath that I ran the race, that I fought the good fight. The key to a lifetime of joy is sharing Jesus with others. Luke 15, joy in heaven, joy on earth when the lost are found. You know why we do that? You know why we evangelize? Because we found the pearl of great price. He went for the joy thereof. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. Because we found joy in Jesus. You know why we don't evangelize? Third John 4, John says, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. There is no greater joy, no greater work that brings great joy in your life than sharing Jesus with other people. And consider the way Paul began and ended his letters in Philippians with greetings recognition, calling people by name. I see you. I hear you. You're significant. You matter. You're important. So the question is, 
An example of the Philippians themselves, Paul said, you gave time and time again. When no one else gave, you continued to give. He used them to prod other congregations to give to help those in Eden Judea. And he said, in a severe test of affliction, you can have joy in severe affliction. Their abundance of joy, that's the source. Their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. When your cup is full and overflows, it splashes other people. And notice that their riches were not in a bank account. Joy that can be found not in the bank, but in your heart. Their riches, as Rome had gutted their land, their riches were in a disposition to give and serve. They gave according, they went beyond, above and beyond, begging in their poverty, in their affliction, begging us to share in this gift. And the key in all of this is verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Commit your heart and your soul to the Lord and everything else will follow. So how do we do that? How do we become verse 4 people without going into other sermons? Three keys to doing this, to being a verse 4 person. When I discover the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Philippians 3.8, experiencing Jesus, everything else becomes dung and rubbish by comparison. I'll give up everything to gain Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can abound and I can be abased. My God shall supply all your need. When I believe that all my needs are met and all my joy is found in Jesus, that conviction frees me to live for the needs of others. Without that conviction, without that commit contentment, I will use others to meet my needs and fill the void in my life. Short-term loss for long-term gain. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians. That's what Jesus did. The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You want your life? You got to give it up. <laughs> you want to gain it? You got to lose it. When you humble yourself to serve others, there will be loss in the short term. Look to the long-term gain. Look to the reward. Because the mind, the attitude determines the actions. Have the mindset that results in unity, in fellowship. Because if my outlook is selfish and arrogant, the outcome is going to be divisive and destructive. <laughs> Have this mind. Have the attitude towards others that Jesus did, one of compassion and concern for the greater good. When we aren't his hands, it's because we don't have his mind. Do what he did by thinking like he did. What would Jesus do? WWJD, well, what did Jesus do? Because we can forget who Jesus is. And we can lose sight of the heart, the spirit, the soul, the mind of what it really means to be a Christian. And if we're going to be a verse 4 person, we have to appreciate and imitate verses 5 through 8. So he continues, Who existing in the form of God, count not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. There's been this controversy from the beginning. The nature of Christ. Is he God? Is he man? Is he both? And this was a central passage in settling that debate. Form of God there doesn't mean an external appearance, but internally, the essence, the core. Being is a, in the Greek, a present participle, which means he's always been and he continues to be God. And so how does form and being relate to grasp? Is he grasping and reaching for something he doesn't have? Or is it talking about not holding on too tightly to something he's always had? The very next word, one word in the Greek, but emptied himself. He evacuated himself. 
gives us the answer. You don't empty yourself of something you don't have. And so the concept is he let go of what stood between him and the cross. He let go of power. He emptied himself of power, prestige, privilege to become a man, to embrace humility and vulnerability, to position himself with us for our privilege. The decision wasn't to empty self of deity, but was an incarnation of what it really means to be divine. John 13. So what do you do in becoming a man? What did he do? It says, as a result of emptying himself, form of God took on form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And likeness of men is not distancing him from man, from humanity. It's distancing him from, from sinful humanity, yet without sin. He was in human homes. He was in human lives. He taught with the human voice. He healed with a human touch. He shed human tears. He bled human blood. He died a human death. He chose to be Jesus. And that's so compelling. He left heaven for a manger to wash dirty feet, even the feet of Judas Iscariot. The disciples have been posturing for power, and he's trying to teach them over and over. You want to be great, be a servant. You want to be first, be last. And he's going to show them now. And we're told what's on his mind that night in John 13. He's going to the cross, the ultimate sacrifice, an act of service. And not just that, we're told that all things have been delivered into his hands. And what's the next thing he does? What's the very next verse? All things delivered into his hands. And what's he do? He gets up, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he proceeds to wash dirty feet, including the feet of Judas Iscariot. Who but God could connect all things, all power in his hands to feet washing? And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. Never. (laughs) This is not greatness. This is not deity. This is beneath you. Get up. And Jesus says, you need your view of greatness reworked. (laughs) God is not unlike himself when he stoops to serve. It is an eternal trait of the Godhead. They could see it, his greatness in the power, in the miracles. But Jesus would say, time and time, you haven't seen nothing yet. I'm going to the cross. And Jesus says, if you don't embrace and adopt that kind of attitude and that kind of lifestyle worthy of the gospel of Jesus, you have no part with me. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And so he humbled himself, which is an epic understatement. And what was the result? He was obedient. We talked about submission, humility, submission, obedience. How they're interrelated. And understand, you don't submit when thy will matches my will. That's not really submission. When you have kids, you know that. Go watch a movie. Go get a piece. Of, that's not submission. When I don't like, I don't want, I don't feel, let this cup pass from me, that's when you submit. And notice that Paul summarized the entire life of Jesus with one word. In between the incarnation and the crucifixion, one word. Obedient. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And death is mentioned twice, again, for emphasis. He didn't just humble himself and become a man. He didn't stop there. He didn't stop at slave and servant. He didn't stop at death. He stopped at the death. He went as low as you can go. How low can we go? That's the whole point of this beautiful passage, to call us to the greatest of sacrifices. The love of Christ constrains us, compels us, that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose Again, 
Philippians 2, verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. That was the result. That was the reward. The result of his humbling, submissive obedience was a high exaltation. Let this exaltation sustain you and motivate you in the humbling. That's what Jesus did, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. True humility ends in glory. You've got to give up glory if you're going to gain glory. The more you give, the more you get. The more you lose, the more you gain. The more you empty and pour yourself out, the fuller you'll be. It's that paradox, going back to the Beatitudes, the way down is up and the way up is down. So wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your... And so you work out your salvation because Christ was highly exalted. There's a therefore there in verse 9. So look before that, verses 5 through 8. Because Christ humbly submitted and obeyed and was rewarded with a high exaltation, you work out your salvation and bring your salvation to its ultimate fulfillment in your life. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Somebody says, that sounds kind of Calvinistic. What's going on there? Think about a child, how a father works through a child. When the child obeys and follows the will and directions of his father, the father is working in him to will and to do. That's how he does it. And so the question this morning is, what do you will to do? Because the will determines the do. Do you will to become a Christian this morning? If so, the way up is down. Be buried with him in baptism, and you can be resurrected to walk with him in newness of life. And you can go on your, Jesus said, leap for joy because great is the reward in heaven. You can go on your way rejoicing like those in Acts after you believe, repent, and are baptized. Maybe you're here as a Christian, you need a change of will to do his good pleasure. That's repentance. And you can do that by choice now or by force later on that day when every knee bows and every tongue shall confess. Hear and heed the Lord's invitation. Come unto me. I am meek and lowly. Just what we're talking about this morning. That's good news. I am meek and lowly. Come be served so you can serve. Come find joy in me so you can find joy. pursue God and other people in happiness and joy will pursue and find joy you. If you need to respond to that invitation, we invite you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.